Good morning. Praise the Lord. Uh, what Luke didn't mention right there is that I was a member here, hello, of uh, Walnut Grove Chapel when, when the church that met in this building uh, was named that um, a couple iterations ago. And uh, I praise God to see uh, all the same, this location being used for gospel ministry. Uh, I know Tommy well, and I'm very affirmative of his work here and pray for him often, and, and Luke and Eric, and thank you for this invitation. Uh, it feels in some ways like, like a homecoming as I see some familiar faces. Well, I don't have anything to say other than what God has said in his scriptures, so let's begin by reading our passage for this morning, which is Galatians chapter 5. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 and the Word of God. I will begin reading in verse 2 and go through verse 15. Our focus for this morning, though, will be verses 13 through 15. Chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. But we should start reading in verse 2. Galatians 5.2. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, that he who is troubling you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But if I, brethren, preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. It's my observation that we live in an ironic world. We live at an ironic time. Irony is when you expect one thing and you get the exact opposite. So why is the world ironic? Well, because we talk about community, we talk about unity, we talk about oneness. One of the buzzwords of our time is connected, how we are connected to one another. Yet, like never before, we have every opportunity to isolate ourselves from one another. From our jobs, to our shopping, to our education, we can get everything we need right in our homes and never leave our homes. Even friendships can be imported into our homes and never actually have to have a friend in the home. We don't even have to go to the grocery store. We can have food delivered straight to us. And to us, that is freedom. I think freedom in our moment in time is defined as all the things our technologies allow us to do and to have whatever we want, and we are confined 
by nothing. All those things that would confine us and constrain us, we have the ability increasingly to overcome them with newer and newer technologies. And yet we say we live in neighborhoods. We say we live in communities. But on those rare occasions that there actually is something we need, we have fast enough cars, easy enough roads, close enough stores, that we just go get whatever we need on our own and we become increasingly self-sufficient. It's a lot easier just to do that than to bother our neighbors for help or to think we might actually have to go without something that we need. So we live closer to each other, but strangely enough, farther away, and we know fewer and fewer of our neighbors. I grew up on 13 acres of land in Maryland, uh, north of Baltimore, almost into Pennsylvania, and uh, our closest neighbor was pretty, pretty good walk away. Uh, but when we needed something, it was either sugar, flour, eggs, or milk, my mother would send us to our closest neighbor to go get that. So Randy and Dinah were our closest neighbors, and if we needed any of those things, my mom would say, Nick, Dan, you guys go get some eggs, right? Now Randy and Dinah, we put our coats and hats on, so it's far enough away, uh, they had two dogs named Sam and Gretel, like Hansel and Gretel, but they were Sam and Gretel, and they were quite terrifying to us as little kids. They would growl at us when we came by. We never knew what was going to happen. Nothing ever did, but they were scary to us. And so we'd get past Sam and Gretel, knock on the door. Hi, Randy. Can we have some eggs? Absolutely. Here are your eggs. Take the eggs home. Say, Mom, here are your eggs. And she says, well, that's two eggs. I needed four eggs. So put the coats, hats back on, back there's Hans, there's Sam and Gretel, past them, can we have more eggs, we get the eggs, we go home. We knew Randy and Dinah, we relied on them, they relied on us. But while today we live in more dense populations, closer than ever before, we've never been more isolated. And if we are tempted towards isolating ourselves, every opportunity is there for us to do just that. The point is, our cultural structures are working together to point us inward, to the self, to individualize. Even while we say and we talk about how connected we are with each other, somehow we think we're free because we're self-sufficient. We don't need to bother others for help, and more importantly, they don't bother us. Well, I would argue that this is anti-human, and it's certainly anti-gospel. In our passage for today, in Galatians 5, my hope is that you will see how this passage teaches us how the truth of the gospel compels us to meaningful community marked by genuine love. That the truth of the gospel compels us, it draws us, it, it motivates us, it compels us to meaningful community marked by genuine love. Look with me there in Chapter 5, verse 13. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this. We'll come to this conclusion in three steps. First of all, freedom in the gospel. Freedom in the gospel. Secondly, freedom to love. Freedom to love. And then thirdly, freedom to self-destruct. Freedom in the gospel. Freedom to love. And imagine freedom to self-destruct. So first of all, freedom in the gospel. Look at verse 13. You were called... To freedom, brethren. You were called to freedom. Now, what does that mean? 
that God has called us to freedom? How has he called us to freedom? And equally, what could possibly enslave us? What, what are those tyrannical forces that might make us enslaved from which we need freedom, right? Now, to understand this, we have to look back in Galatians a little bit because Paul is building his case by the time he gets to chapter 5. So go back with me to chapter 2 and look at verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. And chapter 2, verse 16 is one of those high watermarks in the larger argument that Paul is making in Galatians. So if you're the kind of person that underlines or highlights or puts stars in the margins of their Bible, this is a key verse. Underline, highlight this verse. Galatians 2.16, you probably already have it underlined. You know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one shall be justified. What is this verse about succinct, succinctly? That the works of the law do not bring justification. The works of the law do not bring justification. The works of the law do not bring justification. Why do I say that three times? Because Paul said it three times. Do you see it there in verse 17? We know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we believe in Christ Jesus in order that justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Right? So when Paul repeats things three times, you know that's really important. So we got to ask the question, what is justification? And how is it that works of the law don't bring it? Uh, when I graduated from college, my first ministry was in Colorado, working with juvenile offenders. And my boss, Howard Waller, would uh, give us a training on how do you, you know, how do you talk in that setting? What kind of language can you use? What do kids understand? And these kinds of things. And good old Howard, he told a story about his first time in, in, in a prison. And he was talking to the kids and telling them, you know, you have these experiences in your life. You need justification. You have these feelings about this and your parents and your neighborhood you came from. You need justification. Worst of all, you have sinned before God and you know you're sinners. You need justification. Finally, a kid says, man, I know I need a vacation, but I can't get out of here. <laughs> and Howard said, hmm, no, 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 not just a vacation, not just a vacation, justification, right? So we got to define our terms. What, what is this thing, right? What is justification? It's pretty important to Paul. Justification, justification is when God declares sinners innocent. God declares sinners in the right. God declares sinners righteous. Now you should hear a riddle in that, a paradox in that, because sinners are not innocent. They're not righteous. They're not in the right. <laughs> they are sinners. So how can God declare sinners righteous? Well, the answer is there in verse 16, faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Verse 16. But through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ. In order to be justified by faith, in Christ. You see, faith is not just faith in faith or a feeling or 
an emotional sentiment or an idea. It has to have an object. We put our faith in things. I put faith in the, my, my keys to open the door, and they work. Right? You're putting faith in a chair to hold you up, and it's working for you. Right? So you have to put your faith in something that actually does the work. So the question is, what has Christ done? Who is Christ? What does he do that works for justification? That's effective for justification. Well, the answer is in chapter 3, verse 13. 313. Again, this is a highlight, underline verse. How does Christ bring about God's justification of sinners? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because we are sinners, one and all, there is a curse over our lives. It's the wrath of God. It's the punishment of a holy God who holds sinners to a perfect moral standard. And when we fall short of that, which we all have, we have judgment. But Jesus says, I will take the judgment for them. Jesus, who had no sin, takes the curse on our behalf. And that's the good news of the gospel. Works of righteousness, good deeds can never mount up to make you right with God. And so Jesus says, I will make them right with you, God. I will lay down my life, the punishment that is due to them. I will take it to liberate them from the curse, for God will never be guilty of double jeopardy. He's already judged you in Christ. Then you are set free. Put your trust, therefore, put your faith not in your own works, because they can't justify you. Put your faith in Christ Jesus. And that's the good news, that we can be justified through faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. Now, there's an objection to this. Muslims, Jews, and philosophers make an objection to this. What's the objection? The objection is, if you forgive them based on the work of Christ and don't require law-keeping for their justification, you've just given them a license to sin. You've just given them a pass to sin. Because whatever they do will just be forgiven. There's nothing there, there's nothing in the system of justification to motivate people towards good living, but rather to live like the devil. And that's the objection that Paul anticipates right there in verse 17. Do you see it? But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, through faith in his propitiatory work on the cross, in order we endeavor to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, we continue to sin, is Christ then an agent of sin? In other words, Christ is the one who's actually giving us the free pass to sin all we want. He's setting us up for moral failure. Is Christ the agent of sin? No. Paul's answer is succinct. What does he say in verse 17? Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. Well, how then? How so? How is it then that the people who avail themselves of justification by faith in Christ will still live upright lives? Verses 18 and 19 are a rabbit trail, a little, little parenthetical statement 
off on the side of the larger argument. So maybe we can look at that another time. He comes back to the point. Preachers do that. They diverge and come back. He comes back to the point in verse 20. Verse 20. How then is Christ not an agent of sin? How is he not the one opening the door to more sin? Because he's just forgiving people. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Chapter 3, verse 2, he talks about receiving the Spirit. That's the Spirit of Christ who lives in us. So you see, what happens here is Christ takes what's ours, the curse of our sinfulness, endures the curse of the wrath of God, and then gives to us what is his, his spirit. And so that when he is raised from the dead, he unleashes a power on the world called the Holy Spirit, which is the life of Christ in the believer, creating a new motivation, a new heart to walk in step with the law and the word of God. In other words, it's not the law out here. i got to keep that in order to be justified. Rather, I'm justified by the work of Christ. Therefore, he gives me a spirit, and I want to keep the law as a good disciple, as a good follower of Christ, as a good witness. It's my new, earnest desire that the spirit is working in me to live an upright life. Not because it gets me justification, but because I already am justified. It's a new, powerful dynamic, and it's far more effective than just giving people rules. Give them instead the spirit of Christ. Oh, the depths of the wisdom, the riches, the knowledge of God. That's what he has given us in the gospel. That's the good news. And that, back now to chapter 5, verse 13. Remember that? 5.13 is the freedom to which you were called. You were called to freedom. Not to be bound up by the law, and the fear of the excessive need of law-keeping and navel-gazing and self-evaluation all the time vis-a-vis -vis the law, you are free from that. Because here's what happens when people try to establish themselves before God based on the law, based on law-keeping, based on performance. On the one hand, they either do really well, and they pat themselves on the back, and they're full of self-righteousness, particularly towards other people who aren't as good as them. Let me say that again. People who evaluate themselves and establish their own righteousness before God based on performance are the kind of people who are judgmental towards others because they think they got it going on. Or they don't do well, and they know they're not doing well, and they beat themselves up, and they're entirely discouraged, and they don't know where else to turn because the gospel is receded far into the back of their mind, and law is more in the front of their mind. And both are bad. Self-righteousness and discouragement neither glorify God. What God wants is a humble, joyful people, which he creates through the gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone and the gift of the Spirit. And that's how we're free. Free from that kind of narcissism, free from that kind of arrogance, free from that kind of self-righteousness. We are free, brethren. We are free. And we are free for what? We are free to what? Free in the gospel, free, secondly, free to love. Free 
to love. Look at verse 13 again. You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. Be servants of one another. R.C. Sproul, who passed away recently, is an author and speaker I used to enjoy, uh, used to tell a story about time when he was a pastor, and this pious, faithful lady meant really well said, you know what, Pastor, we have two kinds of people in our church. We have people who love, and we have people who are into theology. And uh, I don't know exactly what he said to her, but the way he tells the story is, listen to the implications of what was just said. You want to be a loving person, right? Who doesn't want to be a loving person? Of course you want to be a loving person. And if you want to be a loving person, stay as far away from theology as possible which also means stay as far away from the Bible as possible. It's just full of theology. It's full of knowledge of God, doctrine of God, character of God, the, the, the sinfulness of humanity, the way of salvation, the work of the Spirit, uh, the, the course of history. All these things are theological, right? But a true theologian who appreciates these things also brings love together, like Paul. Look at verse 6 again. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Now, Paul's right there. Paul just gave you theology. Circumcision and uncircumcision, those are two points of the law that you could use to justify yourself. And people did in those days. I'm circumcised and they're not, or whatever. You understand? And Paul, in chapter 2, and he's reiterating it again here, that doesn't mean anything. It's of no avail. What matters is faith, which we just talked about, faith in Christ, working through love. So he goes from theology straight to love. In fact, look at the next verse. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul believes that if we know the truth, it will result in love. It will result in love. And how can it not? And how can it not? Think about what I just said, that you're a sinner and that by God's grace, completely apart from your own efforts, in fact, despite your own efforts, God has declared you innocent, declared you right, put you in a relationship with himself, adopted you as sons and daughters by grace through the work, not your own work, the work of Christ. If that takes a deep seat in your heart, isn't it that much easier to be gracious and forgiving towards others too? You see them as having the same problem you have, we're sinners all. To be gracious and to be forgiving and to be loving towards people who even in your eyes don't deserve it. Don't ask for forgiveness. But you give it to them anyway. You know, it's really interesting. You're studying John right now. Have you come to the part yet where it says that Jesus loved Judas? <sighs> he knew what Judas was about to do. Judas, Ju Judas is not lovely, right? He's not He's not drawing love out of Jesus by his actions and who he is. Why does Jesus love him? Because he's a loving person. See, the person, the object of your love doesn't have to be lovely. You just have to be a loving person. And Paul is saying theology, the truth of the gospel, creates that. Because when the life of Christ through the Spirit is unleashed on a people, the Spirit gets the work done. He does create that kind of loving community, those kinds of loving people. 
But do you see the irony again in verse 13? Do you see the irony again? You were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. You're called to freedom, now become a servant. That's rich. Because most of us think what? Freedom is autonomy. Freedom is self-sufficiency. Freedom is other people serving me. Freedom is very inwardly focused. It's very, it's very individualized in our world, the concept of freedom. But Paul says, no, true freedom is serving other people. It's becoming a servant. Serving other people. We are free to serve. Why is that freedom? I'll tell you why that's freedom. Contrary to our contemporary moment. Freedom as defined in our current cultural moment is very individualized, very self-orienting, and that is very confining. The more people are inwardly focused, the more that they isolate themselves, they don't create freedom, they create a new kind of prison. Prison of the self. Prison of the self-image that we try to put out there but then can't live up to. Freedom of the self-satisfaction, self-creation. It's all very self-oriented, and it's very frustrating because it never works. It's a new kind of prison, how I have to look to the world or, 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 or the kind of person I want to be. It's very self-orienting like that. It's a new kind of prison. But Paul is saying if you're part of a community where you can serve others and be served by others, know one another genuinely, love one another, that's true freedom. Even though it is a little confining, because now you're accountable to others, but that's real freedom, and that's real humanity, and that's real gospel community. So verse 14, Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's seven words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the one word that he's actually highlighting there? Love. 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 Have you ever noticed that the fruits of the Spirit are very other-oriented. Do you know the fruits of the Spirit? In chapter 5, verse 22 of Galatians, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Right? A lot of us have that verse memorized. The fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean, the fruit of the Spirit? Fruit is something that comes out of a tree, off a tree, right? Well, when the Spirit, the life of Christ, the Spirit of Christ is unleashed on people and in a community, He, the Spirit, produces things. He produces among them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But look how other-oriented there are. You are kind to others. You are peaceful with others. You're patient with others. You're good towards others. You're gentle with others. You see, you actually can't enjoy the fruits of the Spirit the more you're introverted, uh, uh, not in the philosophical sense, but the more you're just self-focused and isolated. In order to experience the fruits of the Spirit, you have to be part of a genuinely loving community, and that is what freedom is. So briefly, what are a couple ways, let's think together, what are a couple ways here at Castleton Community you can engender and cultivate more of that kind of love and service for each other. The first way is actually really simple. This here is your membership directory. 
Eric let me see it when we came in. There's no prior conversation between him and me about this before we got here, but I looked at it and I noticed, isn't that interesting? You have exactly 30 pages. There are 30 days in most months. You could pray for one page of the directory every single day all month long. And you will pray for your people and you will get to know at least names and faces of your community, of the people you're called to love, and you are called to serve and to bear one another's burdens in prayer every single day. And there may be some names and faces in here you don't know. Pray for them anyway. You at least know this much. They're members of this covenanted community committed to love and serve you, and you're committed to love and serve them. And who knows? You might bump into them the next Sunday and say, hey, I prayed for you this week. Oh, thank you. How did you know what to pray for? Oh, I just, I just prayed Galatians 5.13 over you that you would enjoy your freedom in Christ. That's all. Right? It's also the perfect size, isn't it? It fits in the back of most Bibles. So whenever you're studying your Bible, you remember, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for my people too. That will cultivate the ground for love and other service. Here's another one. And this preaches at every church. You can serve in the nursery. Serve in the nursery. Serve in the nursery. Serve with the youth. Serve with the, in the kids' ministry. Because when you do that, you are actually serving the kids, yes. Serving the future, amen. You're also immediately serving the parents. And genuinely, tangibly, expressively, right there in that moment, loving those parents. Whenever I, 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 I say this, uh, I don't know what percentage, a large percent of the congregation just kind of tunes out. Because that ministry is for others. And so I'm speaking specifically right now to older men and women in the congregation. Men and women who have already raised kids and sent them on their way, or they're maybe in their teenage years of life, and particularly men. It seems to be a small number of men in their older years serve in the nursery. And when I challenge them to do this, invariably, I hear something like this. I've already served my time. And I say, if I know the person well, I'll push back, and I'll say, serve my time, that's a, a euphemism for prison time. Prison time. And you understand, brother, that's not biblical. God does not see children as prison or prison sentence for 18 years. It's a gift. It's a gift. And there are people all over the world who wish they could have more children and can't. You know, don't, don't talk of raising children that way. But to your point, what you're saying is, that's hard work. That's hard. And I'm tired. And I say, fair enough. So just think for a moment how hard it is for those parents, six and a half days out of the week, and how tired they are. Can you give a little bit of time on Sunday morning or other ministry gatherings that need child care to serve in those capacities so that you can say to the parents, you know what, I'm not great at this, but I'll keep them alive. We'll have our Bible study lesson. <laughs> No one will choke on the snack, okay? We'll do the craft, and you go to the service, and you enjoy the fellowship of the other brothers and sisters. You enjoy the songs and the prayers, and you be edified by the word of God or whatever activity you have going on at that time. That would be a genuinely, truly serving others. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because I'm free. I am free, and the Spirit compels me, the life of Christ is within me. 
I'm already justified. I'm not going to get any bonus standing with God here, but I'm free. I'm free to not be self-focused, and I'm free to be other-focused. But all of this comes with a warning. Paul is trying to teach us that this is a desirable vision for community, but there's a dark side as well. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. You see, what happens when you have self-interested, self-focused, not even selfish in the heart, but just oriented towards the self kind of people coming together? You have conflict. There's no doubt about it. You have conflict because people are thinking about their own ideas, their own desires, their own needs, and never consider others more important than themselves, let alone think to bear their burdens. And so they bite and devour. Eventually, fights break out. I think it was a little more than 10 years ago, National Geographic had a photograph and a short story, but they couldn't couldn't quite explain the photograph. Uh, The photograph was this. It was a Burmese anaconda in the Everglades. How did a Burmese anaconda get into the Everglades? Somebody released a a pet or several pets, and they proliferated, and they're really, really big. Uh, Burmese anacondas in the Everglades. Alligators in the Everglades are used to eating snakes because they're bigger. That's the way it goes in nature. Right, But these Burmese anacondas are a brand new experience for the alligators in the Everglade. And an alligator, by, by best hypothesis, picked a fight with, an, with the anaconda to, to eat it, but the anaconda won. And as snakes do, swallowed the alligator whole. Okay, But the alligator was not dead. And so it struggled inside the anaconda and actually broke it open and then died because it couldn't get the rest of the way out. The park rangers in the Everglades came upon it, and that's what they found. And that's the best hypothesis for how that could have happened. They have literally devoured one another. They have consumed one another, and they're both dead. And that's the point. That's the point. And that's kind of a, that's a tough picture. Good as before lunch, not after. <laughs> but that could never happen in a church, right? Well, Paul wouldn't say something like this if it couldn't possibly happen. You see? Because while the spirit is at work among us, the flesh doesn't quit. That's why we need the word of God to reorient us, and help us think again, and challenge us to love and serving others with that wonderful freedom we have in the gospel. The greatest irony, therefore, is that freedom does not mean selfishness to do the things I want, but true freedom is serving one another in love, and the gospel and the spirit of Christ that work among us compels us to that end. Amen? Let's pray.